Today's Bible reading is from Genesis 32, 22 through to 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of his hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Thanks, Karen. Well, for those who haven't been here, we, uh, we are going through uh, Genesis 12 to 50. Uh, we're obviously at this passage, uh, but we're also at a broader passage. We, we're going to broadly look at chapters 32 and 33, uh, but I will focus on what's happening uh, in this passage primarily. Uh, let me pray, and, and then we'll have a closer look at this passage. Father God, uh, we do thank you that we come here with great hope, Uh, and with great confidence that you will speak to us through your word today. Father God, we pray your spirit will uh, encourage us, uh, it will uh, help us to understand who we are uh, in your eyes and and what you have done for us. And Father, just help us now to open our hearts and open our ears and our minds to what you have to say. So Father, bless us now and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many cultures and traditions around the world have what's called a baby naming ceremony. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been part of one. We don't tend to have that uh, so much here, but you can have it done. Uh, And uh, it depends on the culture or the tradition, but it goes back many, many, many years. And the Jewish tradition, uh, generally for boys uh, who are circumcised on the eighth day, that's when they reveal uh, the Hebrew name. Uh, of that boy but since the 70s uh, they've also been having baby naming ceremonies uh, for boys who aren't circumcised for whatever reason but also for girls so that they can participate fully uh, in the in the Hebrew uh, in the in the Jewish uh, significant events in their life Uh, its primary purpose of a baby naming uh, ceremony is to celebrate the birth of a child Uh, It's to announce their name and its meaning to the world and to welcome them into Jewish life. 
You see, the Jews, if you want your child to participate fully in the community, uh, you really need them to have a Hebrew name. Names are extremely important in Israel. And it's no different, as we've been discovering, right back uh, in the time of Genesis. We've already seen that the 11 sons already born to Jacob, to the four women, uh, represent uh, events that were happening in the, in the women's lives and, and how Israel uh, and Jacob and, and his family were relating to one another. Uh, we've also seen that Jacob's name itself, if you remember, uh, means supplanter, uh, effectively one who grasps the authority and the power of another. Uh, or it could also mean deceiver, and we've seen him deceiving uh, as he's been taking on the authority of others. Uh, now, in our text this morning, we have a naming ceremony. And Jacob's name is being changed from Jacob to Israel. And it's significant. Uh, it will be the name that God's people bear uh, from this part time forward. The promises that we've been looking at over and over again from Genesis 12 through Abraham, through Isaac, and now through Jacob are being solidified in this naming ceremony and God is naming his people. Um, and to give us some context, I, I just want to remind you briefly of where we've come from. Um, and uh, if you remember, Jacob was sent to his uncle Laban's place by his mother, Rebecca. Uh, he was running from Esau, who wanted to kill him uh, because all the dysfunction in their family. There was uh, mum and Jacob versus dad and Esau. Uh, and Jacob and mum, uh, Rebecca, conspired and they stole, or Jacob's, uh, basically Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew and Jacob took that and then he deceived him out of his blessing by uh, dressing up uh, as Esau and, uh, and Isaac thought he was blessing Esau. It was all very dysfunctional, so he fle flees to Laban uh, a long, long uh, way away and he spends seven years there when it was seven years working for his first wife who was meant to be Rachel and then the master deceiver deceived him and gave him Leah, Rachel's older sister, so he had to work another seven years uh, in order to get Rachel. And then he worked another six years, we saw last uh, week, to build his own flock and his own wealth uh, under Laban's, uh, and, and God blessed him and really took away Laban's wealth and gave it to Jacob. Now, Rebecca, his mum, sent him there for a few days. 20 years later, he is now uh, ready to go home. And he's gone home, he's headed home, uh, and he's had enough. Now, I have a slide to show you, but my clicker's gone. Could you just, uh, just put the map, or just flick to the next one? Um, so just so we can orientate ourselves to where it's been happening. Oh, that's not going to help you at all, is it? <laughs> but basically, this red line up the top, you can see up the top, hopefully, that's Haran where he's gone to. Um, Canaan is down here where he's come from. It's almost a two-week journey to get up. He's now come all the way down, uh, and he's, he's almost about to cross 
the river uh, and Laban has been pursuing him um, in order to catch him because he fled from Laban without really telling him. So it's all very dramatic. Uh, Rachel had uh, stolen some of the household gods. We're not going to have time to look at that in this series. That's okay, you can read that yourself. But Jacob is now 97 years old, which kind of shocked me when I read that. I went, oh, he's 97 now. Now, I was going to get Peter up here, actually, and we're going to have a wrestle um, (laughs) just to illustrate what that might look like for a 97-year-old. But I ran it past the risk management people and, and the risk assessments would have been a bit, a bit much. But if you want to wrestle later, we can, we can grapple it out and I, I, can, I can grab your hip bone and rip it off or something. Um, <laughs> but we're not going to do that. I just want you to get in your head that <laughs> this guy's 97 years old. He was obviously a very fit 97. Okay, He lived to be about 180 or something. I'll get to that at some point. Uh, But uh, anyway, Laban's been pursuing him. And then we read uh, at the... And basically they have this issue, but then they resolve it. They make a covenant and it all becomes quite peaceful. Okay, that's all I'm saying about that lot. Okay, and then we come to the end of chapter 31 and we read this. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. So it kind of resolved quite nicely. All right, and Laban heads north back to Haran, so that's right up the top there, and that's really the last we ever hear of Laban. It's like a chapter has closed, and that's the end of it. We, he's referenced in genealogies and a couple of other times, but we don't know anything more about Laban. And then Jacob continues south onto Canaan where he came from. But then once Laban leaves, we're told this in verse 1 of chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Now we don't know much more about these angels or this encounter, but it is very significant that at this moment they appear again. Uh, to Jacob. Now, if you remember back in chapter 28, when he was initially 20 years ago on the way to Haran, he had the encounter and the dream where he saw the stairway to heaven and angels ascending and descending on the stairway. And God at that point restates the covenant promises that he'd given to Abraham and Isaac he states them to Jacob and effectively hands them over to Jacob. Uh, And at that point, he calls that place Bethel, which means house of God. Now, he encounters the angels again and he calls it Mahanaim, which really means camp of God. Now, your Bibles might say two camps, but in the Hebrew, it's a plural, although it can be used as a singular, and we're told it means the camp of God. Okay, so, so it's like two bookends of that whole 20 years have been put into the Bible, into the narrative, and there's some form of closure. But it's also a reassurance that for the next season 
whatever happens in Canaan, whatever is about to unfold, God is going to be with him still. And so he hasn't had an encounter like this for 20 years. So in verse 3, we suddenly uh, have the elephant in the room comes back to life. 20 years ago, there was this big elephant that disappeared, but now he's back, and his name's Esau. He's not really an elephant for those who don't know, but uh, he's, he's a hairy man, so elephants aren't hairy, but, but he's, he, it's kind of sitting there. If, if Jacob's coming back into this land and Esau has set himself up down in, down in Moab, which is down the bottom, then he's going to hear that Jacob's back. And the last he knows is Esau wants to kill him. And so in verse 3, Jacob sends messengers quite a distance further south into uh, Edom, which is Esau's territory. But the usurper, the deceiver, is now afraid. You see, he knows this could go either way. And he wants to seek favour in Esau's eyes. Now, when I was about 13 years old, as a 13-year-old a few years ago, um, you think you are invincible and you don't really consider consequences and you think what you are going to do is actually what's going to happen. And so I was over a mate's place one day and we had a golf club and we had a golf ball and we thought it was a good idea to go into the middle of his street with houses everywhere, it was a suburb, and to see how high we could hit this golf ball. Very smart thing for a 13-year-old. And I was pretty good at it. And, uh, and we would hold it in the hand, throw it up, and we would just whack it and see how high we could get it. And we got a couple of them up there, and it was pretty good, and they'd come back and bounce on the road, and it was all fun. And then about the third time, I went, whack. And it didn't quite go straight. It went towards his house. Now, I knew his father, and his father was a very angry man. You did not want to get on his bad side. And his house was two stories high. Uh, the second story was just at the back of the house. So it had a roof on the f bottom story up until the second story, and then it went up and another roof. And my golf ball, it was a great shot. You should have seen it. It was... Poof. It came down, hit the roof of the first story, which was tiles. And tiles don't bounce very straight. Bang, straight through his dad's bedroom window. <laughs> now, how do you think I responded in that moment? I, I literally ran. I didn't say anything to my mate. I didn't do... I threw the club and I ran home which was probably a kilometre away. I ran home, locked myself in the bedroom, and that's all I did. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't speak to anyone. But a few months later, I knew I was going to see his dad. And I hadn't heard anything. No one had said anything. My parents hadn't been called. Nothing at all. I didn't even know what happened. And I was so petrified when I, when I was about to see his father. I didn't know how his father was going to respond at all. Well, I reckon that's exactly what Jacob's doing now. You see, you've wronged someone, you've never dealt with it, and now you're going to be confronted by them. 
And Jacob sends messengers. He's about to face... You probably want to know what happened. He, it's okay, I'm alive. <laughs> he wasn't as angry as I thought he was. My, my mate copped it, so that was fine. <laughs> he can be the illustration for the scapegoat that I want to talk about at some point in the future. Um, but, yeah, anyway, we're no longer friends. Um, <clears throat> But see, Jacob is now facing the person he had wronged. And he's petrified and he sends people out to find Esau first, to get, on the, uh, to, to get on the front foot and see and just figure out whether he's going to come back and try to kill him or whether he's, going to, uh, f- he's forgotten all about it. Well, the messengers come back in verse 6 and they say this, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. (laughs) How good is that? 400 men are with him. But they don't really say why he's coming. Well, you don't have to put much together if you're you're already petrified uh, to start freaking out. For for Jacob, he thinks it's obvious. And in verse 7, we read this, verse 7 and 8, In great fear and distress... Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So the day of reckoning was coming in Jacob's head and he knew he would not be able to stand against a man of the wilderness who had been waiting 20 years to take his revenge on him. Jacob the usurper who wanted all the birthright and the blessing of his older brother had taken it by deception but now he had to face the consequences of being a usurper and a deceptor. It had now caught up with him and in many respects as deceivers often are he is shown to be a coward. But the significance in this passage is it forces him into a place where he recognises he can no longer do it on his own. That's the significance. You see, God's angels had reminded Jacob God is with him. Uh, He needs someone who has the power and who has the ability to intervene into his life when all things seem impossible, when it seems Un, like he can't do anything about it. And I reckon some of us have been in those situations ourselves. And there's no coincidence that verse 1 tells us the angels met him before this episode. And now he is humbled enough to submit to God's authority. And we're told in verse 9 that Jacob prayed. Now this is a significant moment. Jacob has never prayed in this whole narrative. The closest he got to praying was back in chapter 28 when God first visited him with the stairway to heaven. Uh, And he, he makes a pledge and he makes a promise, but he talks about God in the third person. He doesn't pray to God. He says, if the God, if God... And he, he just talks about this uh, deal that he makes, but never talks to God. 
But here we have Jacob's relationship with God significantly transformed by this fear and this situation that God really has brought around him. And this prayer is the prayer of a desperate man. He's broken by fear, a man who recognises his weaknesses. And I want you to listen to this prayer. This is a man who is absolutely at rock bottom in fear. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. So it's a significant moment for Jacob as a man. The one who has always wanted to grasp authority suddenly can't live by his own strength. And the only thing he has left, as he was reminded of when these angels spoke to him, so God initiated this, was these promises that he was given 20 years ago. And now he turns to the God who had promised him 20 years ago that he would make him into a great nation with descendants as numerous as the sand in the seashore. And he turns to him and he submits himself to his authority. It's like this Jacob had been transformed and he's ready now. It's like he's ready to uh, submit and now take on this new leadership, if you like, uh, of God's kingdom. Well, he's still afraid though and he sends an enormous gift of animals ahead to Esau to try to placate him. But I also think he was being shrewd here. I think it would have slowed Esau down. He had 400 men who he's thinking is going to do a surprise attack. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly Esau's got to carry all these animals <laughs> with him and they would hear him coming. And I think Jacob was being quite smart to enable um, him to have a bit of time. It would have slowed him down and they would have probably known that they were coming. Well, in uh, verse 18, I want you to notice the message that he also sends uh, to Esau with his messengers, with these animals. Uh, he says this, he says, If Esau meets you and asks who they belong to, you are to say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. Think of the irony of this. He has stolen the birthright, He's effectively got authority over Esau now. He's stolen the blessing. He now inherits two-thirds of his father's wealth and uh, Esau only a third. But now he's giving him as much. He's going, I just want you to have everything. I don't, it means nothing to me if you're going to kill me. He's now submitting to him as Lord, calling himself servant. See, Jacob has gone through this enormous change. 
It is like he wants to give it all back. It's like he wants to undo it all. He doesn't need the blessing now because he's seen that God has blessed him anyway. Well, that night he takes his family across the, uh, uh, the brook of the Jabbok. He puts water between Esau and his family as well. So he's at the camp, he takes them over and he comes back. And I think it's understated in verse 24. So he's left alone. Uh, we're told, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till, uh, till daybreak. Now, I have to say it's a long wrestling match for a 97-year-old. Uh, it's a very long match uh, for anyone. But it also shows that there's a strength in Jacob uh, which is very important here as well for the task that he's going to be given. Uh, but he wrestles with him to make a point, I think. Uh, this man, we, we're not exactly told who he is. Jacob doesn't know who he is, but we do find out uh, in time that it is God himself. Now, whether it is God, one of God's angels, which often is just spoken of as God or whether it's God himself. I think everything points toward God himself and chances are it's at night because he couldn't see his face. Uh, we know that that's an issue. If you see God's face, you wouldn't be able to stand. But we have this wrestling match. And I believe everything in this narrative is working towards the wrestling match and the name change. He's humbled himself in prayer but now this wrestling match is like this tangible relational uh, thing that's going on between God and, uh, and Jacob to see who truly is going to have the upper hand. And after wrestling all night, we're told this in verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. See, Jacob didn't give up. Does that mean God, well, Jacob was as strong as God and God couldn't overpower him? Well, I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, now, I, on the weekend, it happens most weekends, uh, yesterday, sorry, I had a wrestling match. I'm a wrestler. Um, and it's with my children. And <laughs> they're six and eight. And it's them two versus me. And, uh, and they really do think that they can take me on. They are this big, uh, and they give it a good shot. They're dirty. <laughs> They're deceiving. They work together. They plan. They do everything in there that they can to hold me down, to rip my eyes out, whatever it might be. And you know what? I play at their level. I let them feel like they're winning. But I tell you what, when I say to them, okay, an hour is enough. I'm dying here as an old... Someone wondered why I was hobbling this morning. It's simply because I've been wrestling and running with children. But what happens is that I say, enough's enough. But that only makes them want to... I, I shouldn't say kill. They don't want to kill me, but it feels like that to me just makes them want to hurt me more and so they go harder and harder and I've got one move that I do that they know it's all over 
we've got a pressure point right here in the back of our neck. I put my thumb in there and they go straight to the floor. You can do it to anyone. We'll try it out later, Peter. (laughs) And they go straight to the floor. And I hold them there until I say, are we done? (laughs) And they go, yes, yes, yes. And that's it. And it's over. I kind of think that's what's happening here. God is wrestling with Jacob and eventually he just pulls his hip uh, socket out, rips it. He goes, all right, enough's enough. But what's fascinating is Jacob doesn't let go. Okay, he's obviously in pain, but he doesn't let go. And I think what's happening in this wrestling, this isn't about we're all going to have our wrestles with God and if you want your blessing, you need to wrestle with God. That, don't listen to that, okay? This is about the wrestling that is going to forever be between Israel, God's people, and God. This usurper still wants to get the upper hand. Okay, this is the battle of the human nature and the sinful nature wanting to take control of everything and not submitting to God. And I think what's happening here is there's a great illustration of when Israel is going to be walking as God's people, there is going to be this constant wrestling. And God is going to have to, by force, show them that they need to submit to him when they have stopped submitting to him over and over again. I think this is working in a broader sense here. And it's all tied in with this name change. And the man says to him, well, he says, let let me go for it's daybreak. Jacob replies, I won't let you go until you bless me. The man says, what is your name? Now, it's kind of a silly question when you think about it. God knows who this is, okay? But he's making him state the fact that his name is Usurper. Okay, your name is Deceiving Usurper. Well, that's no longer the case. There's a transformative element that's going on here for Jacob because he is now going to be in a place where he will be working uh, in a, in, 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 within God's authority and he is now taking on the name of all of God's people and all of his descendants that will flow out of this. And he says, uh, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. You see, while Jacob is uh, afraid of Esau, we're seeing something very strong about Jacob here. He is in a struggle with God and he won't let go until he blesses him. And the blessing is a name change. And the blessing is that you will now be called Israel, because you do have a strength to overcome the world and to even wrestle with God and to last till daybreak. And I think this is an extremely significant moment in all of our history for faith because this isn't just a name change. This is the God who is the father of the nation Naming his firstborn son. This is a naming ceremony. This is God naming 
his firstborn son, Israel. You're going, that doesn't make any sense. Wasn't that Jesus? Well, let me read you from Exodus 4, 21 to 23, just before God saves the Israelites from uh, Pharaoh's slavery. Uh, He tells Moses this, The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you uh, the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn sons. Okay, what's happening is that God is changing this relationship from God and people to the Father God and children. You see, Israel are his children, and all of Israel, Jacob's offspring, all the 12 tribes will be his children. And they are grafted in to that because they are related to Jacob. But there's a catch here. The covenant comes with this requirement, if you remember, to live in holiness, to live in obedience to God. And so as the firstborn son, Israel is to now submit, as we've seen Jacob do with this prayer, to their father in all its fullness of holiness and righteousness. Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So to be my true children, you need to live in holiness. You need to live as my people. But this wrestling match shows us, and we see the history of Israel show us, that that is never the case. As much as they desire, as much as they try, as much as God gives them a sacrificial system, a law to live under, they are never able to fulfill the law. And so the law, as we're told in Romans, just highlights sin. And so we have this tension of the firstborn son of God rejecting him. So what is going to happen? Well, God sends his only begotten son, the one from his own, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, because he becomes Israel for Israel. He lives the life that Israel could not live. And then we go on to hear that the true Israel are those, Romans says, put their faith in the true Israelite. So the true Israel that this is all pointing to is Jesus, the firstborn. So that you put your faith in him and you are grafted in. And Romans 5 talks about Abraham when he believed the promises of God. That faith credited, was credited as righteousness. So fulfilling the law and the sacrificial system and being, uh, being genetically uh, through the line of Jacob is not 
the true Israel. The true Israel are those who come by faith and believe the promises that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is why Romans says, but now a, new, now a righteousness that is by faith from first to last has been revealed. But it was always the case. The true Israelite was the one who in faith put their trust in the Lord and his promises. And the demonstration of that is Jacob's prayer as he's sitting in fear. Now the irony of this whole passage is when Esau finally comes in chapter 33 with his 400 men, <laughs> he uh, runs to meet Jacob in verse 4, embraces him, throws his arms around his neck and kisses him. They weep. They are the children God has graciously given your servant after Esau asks who they are. And he goes, what did you send all the animals for? <laughs> I've got blessing. Can you see how God <laughs> has created this situation? If he knew that Esau, back in verse 6 of chapter 32, was, was all fine... None of this would have unfolded. But God has brought him to a humble submission so that he can give him this name so that he can become the true father with Abraham and Isaac of God's people. And that's why we call Abraham our father because by faith we are saved. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus and we are grafted in to the true Israelite, the Lord Jesus. And we are God's kingdom. We are God's people. But more than that, this passage is saying we are God's children. We are adopted into his family. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. And just as a father loves his son, just as even though my boys try to do great damage to me and they do damage to each other and they uh, ruin the house and they ruin everything in my life. Not true. I would do anything for them. In fact, I'd give my life for them. And that's what God has given for you. Because he loves you and because he has chosen you and because he has grafted you in to Israel, his people, because of his work, his love, his calling. And his ask of you is to respond with faithfulness and obedience, not to earn his favour anymore, but in order to uh, bless him just as a thank you offering. Romans 12. Now live your lives as a... I'm going to have to read it. Let me read you Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, 
his good, pleasing and perfect will. Not to earn his favour, but to give thanks. Let me pray. Father God, uh, we just thank you for all that you've done for us. Father God, we thank you that you have uh, given us your only son. We thank you that uh, he has died on the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have done that willingly. Thank you that you are the true Israelite, the one who has fulfilled the law, fulfilled all the promises of God. And when you did not deserve death, Lord, you took it upon yourself so that we could be forgiven, we could be set free through faith. And Father God, we come to you now and we ask that we will be able to use our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. Father God, take our life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.